Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast. Today, big news on the COVID vaccine front. The Pentagon's Inspector General has ruled the military is illegally issuing blanket denials of thousands of religious exemption requests. These are confusing times. Even as the CDC has finally acknowledged what we've been talking about for a couple of years, that natural immunity from COVID is at least as good as vaccine immunity, most studies, by the way, say natural immunity is far more enduring, there are still irrational vaccine mandates in effect in some places. Even though most people, when asked, don't think there's a COVID emergency. Most people, according to CDC, are at low risk of suffering serious illness if they get COVID. Young, healthy people like military troops have a serious illness risk from COVID approaching statistical zero. Yet vaccine mandates are still in effect in some branches. Battles are being fought over this and often won in court, but there's been no cohesive military-wide approach to throw out the old policies that have been found to be unlawful for various reasons. Now we're getting a look at a memo from the Defense Department Inspector General that concludes the military has been illegally issuing blanket denials of religious exemption requests, contrary to federal law and policy. This is huge. One interesting facet of the memo is it begins to quantify just how many troops were trying not to get COVID vaccines. In one 90-day period, according to the Inspector General, at least 4,500 requests for religious exemptions were denied. That means the military offices were being flooded by applications from military troops to be able to skip the COVID vaccines. Today, I'm getting details on all of this from David Yance, an attorney representing military troops. We start with some background and then move on to the big news. Yeah, military members have faced a mandate to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. And one of the significant issues with the mandate is that military members are allowed to apply for a religious accommodation. Every military member doesn't give up their constitutional rights simply by joining the military. And there's a set process in place. It's protected by military regulations, but also the First Amendment to the Constitution and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So what's been happening since the mandate came down is many military members were concerned that all of their religious accommodation requests were being denied. And we've seen that throughout the process. As an attorney, many of my clients have received the same denial letter from from the Air Force, from the Navy, from the Army. The denial letters have been the same. There hasn't been an individualized uh, determination as required under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in each case. And, And it's been a challenge to try to draw attention to it. So that's the background of what we've been dealing with. Because of the blanket denials of these religious accommodations, many military members have been a part of federal litigation across the country, and federal courts have granted injunctions to prevent the military from further punishing or kicking military members out of the service because of concerns the federal courts have, these federal judges have, about the blanket denials of these religious accommodation requests. So as it stands today, There's an injunction in place preventing the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marine Corps from punishing or discharging military members who have submitted a religious accommodation request. Is that being observed? Because I see notes pop up on the news or 
on social media where it seems as though some branches or military members are still being forced or discharged because of their refusal to get the vaccine for religious reasons? That's right. So the injunctions um, that are in place are not yet in place for the Coast Guard or for the Army. So while the Navy is protected for months, they were the first one to get protection from federal courts. And so for months, Air Force members and all other service members and other branches were being kicked out, even though Navy members were protected. Then the Air Force came and then quickly the Marine Corps litigation followed suit. But as it stands today, I mean, for example, I'm preparing for two Army cases um, that may happen as soon as next week where Army officers may be kicked out over this, while if they were in the Air Force in the same situation, they'd be protected by the litigation. So that's one of the challenges because legal challenges have to be brought against each branch separately in federal court. Why is that? Because I don't know that much about the law, but I thought when a precedent was set that could potentially apply to something similar, a similar circumstance, then it applied to the circumstance. You're saying it has to be fought individually with each branch? It does. And what's interesting about that is uh, Liberty Council, um, a nonprofit uh, religious freedom organization, attempted to bring uh, litigation that would protect every service member, every member of the Department of Defense in their litigation in Florida. And that attempt to have all service members classified as one class for purposes of a class action, that attempt was actually denied. And so this litigation has had to focus on each of the branches separately. And before we get to some other news for today, can you tell us about the one client that you discussed earlier on this podcast and what the status is with him today? Because that was a big win at the time, right? Yeah, we're talking about Navy officer Billy Mosley. So Billy's case was unique in some respects because what we did in that case is challenge the lawfulness of the order to get the vaccine in the first place. Religious issues aside, we were able to demonstrate that the order to get the vaccine was not a lawful order because it was given in violation of federal law that makes it clear that you cannot mandate a military member receive an emergency youth authorization vaccine uh, without a presidential waiver. That's never happened to, to date. That has still never happened. There's still no FDA approved vaccine that's being produced in the United States and made available for military members. So that, that's a different challenge to this that, that doesn't even get into the religious issues. But that case is encouraging and it did set good precedent because um, military members when presented with the facts and presented with the federal law did the right thing and they found it was not a lawful order. So there is precedent um, in individual cases that we can win this and we're gonna continue that fight with our other clients. And can you explain, because this is confusing to people, including me, how there is no FDA-approved vaccine being offered? Try to explain in simple terms how the vaccine that's in use is not the one that was approved. Right. And I wish it was a simple explanation. But as you know, with your background um, in this area, it, it's not that simple. So what happened is you know, Pfizer, Moderna, they began producing an emergency use authorization vaccine, meaning it hadn't gone through the full FDA approval process. In, uh, in August of 2021, it reached a point where the FDA approved a specific formulation of these vaccines. The difference is that formula that they developed and got FDA approval for has not been produced yet. 
and has not been produced yet in the United States. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. One of them is simply a profit motive by these vaccine manufacturers because they have millions and millions of doses of the emergency youth authorization formula sitting in stockpile. And so they have not produced the FDA approved formula yet. I mean, that's a sort of a huge factor here that I've heard people again, try to explain and challenge. It's very difficult. It's odd to me when it comes to vaccines in general. And I learned this years ago when it comes to parents who have medical reasons they want to opt their children out of certain vaccinations because their doctors recommend the kids, you know, with certain predispositions could be harmed by certain vaccines. And in many school systems, you're not allowed to make a scientific objection. You can make a religious objection, but you can't object on the basis of science and medicine, which seems a little crazy to me. That's just my comment. <laughs> right, all right, no, but but ahead. you're right because all of that all of that goes into this because we're talking about federal law that prevents the military from experimenting on military members because there's a sad history of that in our country. And so that that's the whole point of this. We've been through this with anthrax. What was done to military members was illegal and catastrophic to many and yet here we are doing it again and the president of the United States could fix that issue by issuing a directive an executive order mandating an EUA vaccine for military members, and, and that has not happened. Why do you think they haven't taken that simple step, which would resolve all of that? I mean, not it wouldn't be something that the service members want, but like you say, that would remove a point of challenge. I, I think um, in order to do that, they would have to admit that there is no FDA-approved vaccine available, and they would have to make it clear, and it would be then very clear, I think, to the American public that what they're getting when they're receiving the vaccine today is not the FDA-approved formulation. I think also in part because of what happened with anthrax, there's a political calculation that's being made. There is significant political risk in mandating um, an experimental vaccine without long-term safety studies. And there's a lot more information coming out now that calls into question the safety of these vaccines anyway. And, and not to get off on that tangent, but I, I do think there's a political calculation that goes along with this. You alerted me to a recent decision by the acting inspector general for, I guess it's the Defense Department, Sean O'Donnell. And this decision is titled Denials of Religious Accommodation Requests Regarding Coronavirus Disease 2019 Vaccination Exemptions. Can you tell us what this decision, I think it's dated, let's look. This date, this is dated June 2nd. It's actually, it was actually released on the 2nd of September. So, okay. so um, that's when it was actually released and made formal. Um, so yeah, I can, I can talk through this. This is really, really significant news. Um, and in many respects, the news we've been hoping for from the beginning of this mandate. Very, very early on, my clients saw over and over again, I saw repeatedly this idea that the Department of Defense had a plan in place to deny all religious accommodation requests. Over the months since the mandate was rolled out, even the different leaders in the Department of Defense, including a high-level Air Force leader, has admitted that the only religious accommodations that have been granted are for service members that were already separating, and it's less than 1%. So it, despite the change in 
in the virulence of the virus, despite the change in the studies, despite what we know about the efficacy of natural immunity, those blanket denials have still occurred. So one sort of last ditch effort military members have to ask questions and to push back internally is to file an IG complaint, an IG complaint with the inspector general's office. What's happened is those IG complaints filed by individual service members have finally made it to the office of the inspector general for the Department of Defense. And in just incredible, incredible news, that acting IG has sent a memorandum to the Secretary of Defense warning the Secretary of Defense that there is apparent non-compliance with the Constitution, with federal law, and DOD instructions and regulations with regard to the review of these religious accommodation requests. And the two critical things that the IG says in that memo are, one, these appear to be blanket denials. If you look at the denials that have been sent out and the reviews that have been done, there's no indication that there was a true individualized review as is required by law and that the denials look the same, that it's a template. And we've known that, but, but to, to have the IG put that in writing, it's huge. The other fascinating thing about this IG memo that just is such a great application of common sense in all of this is they looked at the number of applications that were submitted and, and how long it would take to review them. And they just did a, a quick breakdown and said, the number of reviews that are being made that they're saying they're doing on a daily basis is more than 50 a day. And if you assume that the appellate authority, so the Surgeon General of the Air Force, for example, did nothing for an entire work, 10 hour workday, but review those, then that, this, that means the Surgeon General was spending on average less than 12 minutes per package. And that assumes working a 10 hour day with no breaks, no distractions, no lunch, nothing else. And so obviously the office, the inspector general found that absurd to think that a individualized review for a military member could be done in less than 12 minutes. And that's if you make some absurd assumptions. Let me read two operative paragraphs from the inspector general's memo to the defense secretary. The Department of Defense hotline received dozens of complaints regarding denied religious accommodation requests from service members. We found a trend of generalized assessments rather than the individualized assessment required by federal law and DOD and military service policies. And then the second graph that I think is obviously really important, the denial memorandums we reviewed generally did not reflect an individualized analysis demonstrating that the senior military official considered the full range of facts and circumstances relevant to the particular religious accommodation request. For example, an Air Force general denied one airman's request with the brief statement, quote, I disapprove your request for exemption from vaccinations under the provisions of, and then he notes some provision there. So again, to your point, they're required by law to give much more individual consideration of a religious accommodation request, and they're clearly not doing that. Is there any indication that the Defense Department has changed anything as a result of receiving this? You said it became public only recently, but if the memo was written in June, have, have they changed the way they operate? And can the inspector general force them to change the way they're operating? So the inspector general does have the authority to uh, leverage you know, what they have from this to, to say you need to correct, correct what you're doing. And then if they don't, there's supposed to be consequences. Normally for a military commander, a founded 
IG complaint like this one could mean the end of a career. I mean, it creates what's called a senior officer unfavorable information file and typically prevents promotion. So if this was a general officer that was the subject of this IG complaint, we would expect this would end their career if they were found to violate the law, especially if they didn't correct it. Now, when we're talking about the Secretary of Defense, some, you know, a civilian that's appointed, it, it's a little bit different, but, it, but it's huge. There is absolutely no indication. There's no indication the Department of Defense has changed anything. The Army is still moving forward. The Coast Guard is still moving forward with discharges. And the Department of Defense is still taking a position in litigation, ongoing federal litigation, that they've done an individualized review. And, and we're just getting into the point in federal litigation where they'll be the attorneys will be doing depositions and other things. So it is clear that the findings of this memo are going to be inconsistent with affidavits that senior military leaders have already done about the individualized process. So that's why this is so significant. The IG process is designed to be an independent review like a whistleblower to draw attention to violations of the law. So I, I am... I, I am thrilled that there is an inspector general that was willing to put this in writing. Much more after a short break. All year round, there are challenges to keeping your skin healthy. Salt, sun, chlorine, cold, and wind. That's why I designed Siren A Cosmetics, a line of skin-loving, handmade products that will keep your skin glowing year round. I'm Star owner of Lemonade Mermaid at store.lemonademermaid.life. I worked hard to formulate fresh, vegan body butters, lotions, scrubs, lip glosses, and more with ingredients that are good for your skin year-round. But don't take my word for it. Check out our reviews. My website is store.lemonademermaid.life. And listeners of this podcast can get 20% off my Mermaid Moon Gloss to Balm lip gloss by using the checkout code PODCAST. I hope to see you at store.lemonademermaid.life. What's interesting to me is that it wouldn't be that hard for the Pentagon to fake individualized reviews. And by that, I mean appear to spend more time, but have a preconceived notion that they're going to deny all of them anyway. But they didn't even bother to do that because it seemed like either they don't understand the regulation or they didn't matter that it didn't matter to them what what it required. Well, I, I think that's critical. I think that there has been a, a degree of of arrogance or just sort of a this this process has begun has gotten so political um, that that's been a concern. There's just been, well, I'm just following orders. I'm just doing what I'm told. And so there's been a very much a top down um, approach to all of this. So individual commanders have been afraid to take a stand and push back against this. But that's why I think that that analysis of the time it takes to review an appeal package is so important. I think that analysis by by the IG's office is critical. And, and some of my clients are, are very smart, smart people, very senior military officers in, in the intel community and otherwise who did that same analysis. They're like, how is this even possible? that they could do this many denials and actually individually review them. And I think that's critical. So even if we see memos where they've attempted to change the language a little bit to make it seem as if it was a, a more individualized review, the time, the time just doesn't exist for them to have done what they say they did here. And I think that's what's great about this information from the memo. And then the big picture, one thing that really 
confuses me in a way, just looking from a common sense standpoint, that this is even still a thing. Because I don't get the sense that most people think there is any sort of COVID emergency going on. We know the vaccines don't work, don't work well. We know they don't prevent transmission. And we know young people, the people who are in the military and are healthy otherwise, have very little um, chance of getting any serious illness at all, even if they get COVID. So the whole notion that this was a requirement to begin with and is still a requirement just seems so out of whack. Well, it, you know, it's almost, if it wasn't so serious, and I mean, it, it didn't affect me and my career personally as an officer in, in the reserves and my clients, it would be humorous because up until August 11th of this year, everything that the military said consistently was, well, we're just following CDC guidance. August 11th of, of this year, the CDC came out and said, essentially, well, when you look at natural immunity and the efficacy of the vaccines, there's no reason to treat vaccinated and unvaccinated any differently. A clear change in the guidance from the CDC. And even that, the military did not react to. The military has changed nothing. Up until that point, they were following everything the CDC said. That was their excuse. And now they're not even following that anymore. Well, it doesn't make sense. And you know, from a rational and logical and scientific standpoint, there are a lot of decisions. And I, I think I argued in a podcast a couple of months ago that I think there's going to be a cascade of court decisions and findings coming out over the next one to five years that in retrospect support a lot of what people were trying to argue and not having to have mandatory vaccinations or being allowed to have exemptions. There are cases where nurses have been allowed to get their jobs back after they had been fired for not getting vaccinated and so on. I think there's going to be all kinds of cases that come through. Maybe we won't hear that much about, and I hope they would impact maybe the next time if there is a next time. But you know, it's taken some time to get these things through court. It just seems like there's there are more favorable decisions coming out for those who question these blanket mandates. I do think that trend is is finally there. You know, sadly, with the military, we didn't learn from the anthrax mandates. We we didn't learn for whatever reason. We didn't learn from that, and it took five years in federal courts. And in the meantime, military members were were court martialed. They were kicked out. They they suffered um, from negative service characterizations. And we're doing everything we can to help as many people as we can avoid that now. And I think that's why there's so many groups that are involved in this litigation. To remind people, um, I don't remember as much about it, although I was assigned to start covering some vaccine-related issues about the time when there were a lot of anthrax issues in the military. But these were vaccines, actually a series of vaccines, if I remember correctly, required to be given to military members to protect them against an attack by these, what is anthrax is a spore, a biological agent, is it? That's right. And these caused, according to the service members, a lot more adverse events than some typical vaccines that they were getting. And perhaps part of that was the combination with other vaccinations. But regardless, um, there were so many injuries reported and, and many service people afraid to get them or who had gotten an injection and suffered an adverse reaction, but were required to continue getting the injections. And in the end, like you say, it took years but ultimately it was decided that that was an unlawful order to give these experimental vaccines to force them on the, on the troops. That's right. 
that's, well, that's that right. Was, we're talking about the early 2000s, I think. That's right. We're talking about the early 2000s after September 11th. Um, there were there was you know some anthrax scares that were happening in the country. So there was there was a move to do this, um, and it was it was an emergency use vaccine. It hadn't gone through proper procedures, and according to the Veterans Affairs, the last numbers I've seen, um, there's still over 35,000 military veterans who are being treated for serious adverse effects from the anthrax vaccine, serious neurological diseases, the equivalent of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease or MS from certain batches of that experimental anthrax vaccine. And just to go another step, when I was first assigned to cover some vaccine issues for CBS, one of them was the restart of the smallpox vaccine program, which was primarily initially given to the troops in the early 2000s after 9-11, when it was feared that in addition to anthrax, there could be a smallpox biological weapon attack by terrorists. And so, you know, the troops were experimented on in a sense by being given smallpox vaccine. That vaccine had been stopped in the United States for a long time because first of all, there isn't smallpox in existence in the United States. It's a horrible, extremely virulent disease, of course, but the vaccine itself is problematic. It has a lot higher rate of adverse events and deaths than other vaccines. So it's not an easy calculation. And so at the time the troops were being given anthrax and smallpox vaccine, it turned out that there was a heart signal. In other words, some of them were having strokes and heart attacks and deep vein thrombosis and things like that that was believed to be as a result of smallpox vaccination. And they had to stop that program. I don't know if many people know about that. They were going to restart smallpox vaccine even to civilians at the time. And all of that, after a number of deaths were reported and injuries, was put on hold. So yeah, long history. And I guess unless you've been covering this or been around a while, you wouldn't remember or have the institutional memory to understand we've kind of been through some of this before. That's right. And, and unfortunately, we haven't, we haven't learned from it. And, and it's worse now because there are legitimate religious objections to these uh, COVID treatments, and uh, those are being ignored. The religious rights of, of military members are being ignored. And then lastly, let's go ahead and go over that briefly. What are the religious objections to the COVID vaccine in general? Yeah, there are, there are various ones. I think the most consistent ones are the concern with the testing and development of the vaccines using uh, fetal cell tissue. So there is a concern with that. Those that, are, that believe life begins at conception have uh, grave concerns about continued ongoing um, medical experimentation and development of these treatments using fetal cells. So that's a significant issue. Um, many, many others of my clients are concerned that this is really a gene therapy rather than a vaccine as we would have defined it before. And because of that, they have a religious objection to essentially messing with their God-given immune system and their DNA in this way. Um, others believe that as a, as a Christian, as a military member, they have an obligation to take a stand for rights and freedoms, and they believe that the mandates that were rolled out for all of society were wrong and that they had an obligation and a moral obligation to take a stand against that. So there's some nuance and variance to the different objections, but I, I would say the most common ones are the objection to the use of fetal cells as well as 
the, the mandating a gene therapy. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you'll share this podcast and leave a great review. And now you can support independent journalism, which has never been more important, by visiting CherylAckison.com and clicking the store tab. There are some thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers like you, with proceeds from sales benefiting various independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.